Welcome to Mercy Street Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Mercy Street Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. Our desire is to unleash healthy disciple makers in West Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing to listen to new messages every week. Have a God-filled day. Well, welcome to Mercy Street Church. Hope you're doing all right today. My name is Michael McGee. I serve as an elder at Mercy Street Church. Uh, I oversee a couple different things here, but I would love to chop it up if I've never met you before. We're going to start our time with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into Matthew 18. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you that we get to join in uh, with what you're doing in the world and especially how you've concentrated us here. Just to listen to your word, and to listen to your song. As the songs and as the word preached to us, we pray that you would transform us. That, Father, as those of us may have hard hearts, not ready to hear that you would soften. Father, those who have plugged their ears to whatever message you may have for them, I pray you unplug. God, for those of us that you've plucked out of the world, You've given us the grace to know You and to see what You're doing in the world. pray that You would usher us closer and closer, that You make Your face to shine upon us, that we would be renewed and refreshed today, um, and that we would just be encouraged as we leave from here. Uh, We pray these things that You would do, uh, that You'd speak through me, that You'd speak through Your Word, that You'd speak to Your people, that we might speak to the world of Your good news, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, welcome back from another wild week in America. I hope you're doing well today. I hope that you find that uh, being in the presence of the saints is very refreshing to a crazy, wild world. So, we're going to be in Matthew 18. So, if you wanted to, if you haven't gotten there yet, you can get there. I didn't even get there, so I'm going to get there real quick. That's where we're we'll hanging out first. We're going to look at a couple passages today. But where I want to start out is just kind of bringing up what we're talking about today. In about two years ago, a German, uh, a Korean German philosopher by the name of Byung Chul Han, you've never heard of him, I've never heard of him before I saw this or read this, but he wrote an essay that turned into a book called The Burnout Society. The Burnout Society. What he was doing is he was looking at the Western world, and he was saying, we have an epidemic in the Western world. And that is that we live in a society that's an achievement society. We live in an achievement society. It's a society that says you can do X. While as past generations lived in societies where it said you can't do this or can't do that, you can't do this, in in some really great ways in our society, we fought for can. So everyone can or should be able to vote. Everyone can access education, or should be able to access education. Uh, You can make of your life, kind of American dream style, your own business, your own skill set. You can become insta-famous if you want to become insta-famous. You can can, uh, have your work at home. You don't even have to go out anymore. Uh, You have a lot of cans. You're able to do a lot of different things, while the past said you couldn't. You were set to a certain class or caste, or position in the world, and that's who you were, while now 
we have the Achievement Society. And in his book, he says this is great and it's had benefit, but it also has had some casualties. A cardiologist by the name of Meyer Friedman is the guy that broke uh, the research in saying that chronic stress and heart disease are connected. Mm. I know some of you feel that today. Chronic stress and heart disease are related. Some of that's bad news for some of us today. Uh, He coined a term called hurry sickness. That's hurry sickness. And psychologists now actually diagnose, some psychologists diagnose people with hurry sickness and treat them for hurry sickness. He defined it as this, a continuous struggle of unremitting, unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Who's that today? Yeah, you're listening to the podcast on the way into work and on the way out to work, and you're going home to read and study, hang out with friends, and you're trying to cram it in as much as you can. This can study or achievements, uh, achievement-drivenness uh, reality that we all live in is consuming us. We strive to do more and more in our cultural moment. Our hurriedness and our busyness, the problem isn't uh, you're hurried, but you have a core root issue that we want to explore today. These actions of ours, whether they are stress, pride, self-glory, busyness to the point of ignoring others, are a form of obedience or disobedience to Jesus. Our actions are obedience. Not solely our whole our hurried actions, not just our busy schedules, but everything from obeying Jesus to disobeying Jesus are all driven and rooted by something. A few months ago when we kicked off Matthew, I started saying that our obedience is allegiance. Our obedience is allegiance. And our allegiance is rooted in something. It's rooted in someone or something. These are the deepest roots of your actions. Is where does your allegiance lie? And your allegiance is tied to who or what you think is supreme in your life. Or, as our passage learned today, who or what we think is the greatest. And so, my proposition today is that when we mistake who or what is greatest, we misplace our allegiance, we misrepresent the king, and we have misunderstood the kingdom. When we mistake who or what is greatest, we misplace our allegiance, we misrepresent the king, and we have misunderstood the kingdom of heaven. And so to unravel this, we're going to look at the book of Matthew. Like I said earlier, we're going to be in chapter 18 if you just walked in. The Gospel of Matthew has been the story and narrative of Jesus, the promised king who would come and begin a new exodus, a new breakout, a new creation, a new beginning. That he would restore all things. And whenever his ministry began, let me switch your mics. There we are. The narrative of Matthew... I can talk loud. The narrative of Matthew is about how Jesus came. And when Jesus came, He was bringing about the restoration of all things. He was bringing about His kingdom reign. And where we find ourselves today is where Jesus is about to begin the end of His earthly ministry. He's kind of on the end. Uh, he's, he's starting to get to the mountain that He's going to climb up and die on a cross. That's where we're at. Is He's about to leave Galilee and enter into suffering. And so where we find ourselves is Jesus is teaching and moving. He's teaching and moving. He's teaching and healing. And that's where we find ourselves in this month studying the misunderstanding of the kingdom of God. 
And so if you look at Matthew 18, 1 through 4, Jesus is going to tell us about greatness and where greatness really is found. Can y'all hear me now? Okay, great. I was too low. Um, so let's look at Matthew 18, 1 through 4. Terry read it earlier for us, but we're going to read it one more time. So Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, calling to himself a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the twelve, wherever they approach, and there might be some other disciples in this scenario, the twelve approach Jesus and they ask him a pretty gutsy question, right? So, it's not just gusty that you're asking the guy that's been promised for generations and thousand years or something like that, like, who's the best? But they're also asking on the heels of John the Baptist being executed. Now, if you look back in Matthew 11, Jesus has only said one guy is the best, or one guy is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's John. And then four chapters later, they execute John, and three chapters later, the disciples come up and they say, hey, you know, QB1 is down. Uh, so who's, uh, you know, is it me? Is it him? Who is it? Who's the greatest? That's the question they're asking. It takes a lot of audacity to not only ask the Messiah that, but no sensitivity to John. John is just left to the side, and they want to know who's the best now. Uh, so th- this, is, this is our disciples. You know, we can really relate to that, right? Uh, where, where we just are consumed with ourselves. Verse 2, Jesus answers them. He calls a child. Now, based on the Greek here, he's not just calling a 10-year-old. He's actually probably calling a toddler to come and stand in the midst of them. So I'm actually going to ask someone really important to come up here real quick. We got those steps down. Hey, Redden, look. Say hi. Can y'all say hi to Redden? (laughs) Kind of hiding. Now, this is kind of what Jesus did. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. Come here, buddy. And to teach them a lesson, he called his, this, this child. Likely, uh, if he's in Capernaum, which is where they're at, it's Peter's child, is what some speculate. Now, I wanted you to see, and he kind of did a little bit what Redden did there. Redden was not consciously trying to get up here already. But Redden, immediately upon getting up here, started stepping behind me. He understood the greatness that is in front of him, right? He saw something massive in front of him, something bigger than himself. And that's the imagery that Jesus is trying to put us at. Here you go, Drew. You can take, take my son back. Um, he really wants to get to his fruit juice and stuff. So, <laughs> Yeah, so Jesus brings us up to demonstrate what children are like. They have a propensity to see greatness more than we do. They have a propensity to see something bigger than themselves and react. That's why they're obsessed with cars or trucks or birds or colors. While we just pass straight through them, they see something bigger than themselves, including in this case where a child is outside the circle of disciples with no interest to try to get in the middle of them, and Jesus brings him in the middle and says, this is what I want you to be like. And he has a visceral reaction. It's natural for him to see something otherly and react to it. While for us, 
We're the disciples there in the middle, like, like me, or is it him? We assume our position, but children have a propensity to recognize and be wowed by the world around them, be wowed by other greatness. Other greatness. They are able to humble themselves and understand what is bigger and celebrate it more than what is of themselves. They can also understand to some degree their need. Redden needs help walking up the stairs. Children need help just cleaning themselves. Children need help just to eat. They will die alone, right? They understand a degree of dependence. They are dependent upon grown people to hold a conversation, to think for themselves, to be led for themselves. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is getting at. Jesus is placing a child in front of them as an example because they're able to locate greatness. They're able to locate greatness. And Jesus says and looks at his disciples and says, if you don't turn and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The verbiage here, turn, is the idea of repentance. So he's looking at disciples who have been with him the whole time and says, you need to turn. Some of us need to hear that today. That you've been in church for a long time. You know this culture, this atmosphere. And he says, you need to turn. These men who have been with Jesus, like we don't even get that benefit. He says, you need to turn. Some of us have left the message of repentance outside the church when they walk in to be heard and entertained. But Jesus is saying today, you need to turn. That's the language Jesus says. He says, turn and become. Because repentance is not just a thought. Just because you think Jesus is God does not mean you've repented. But action accompanies the turning. He says, and become. Turn and become like children. That's what He's saying to us today. He's saying that we need to become like children who are dependent upon other greatness. He says to humble yourself like a child. I love C.S. Lewis. So Jerry said tread lightly when you bring up C.S. Lewis. Um, but uh, I had to bring him up because Jerry likes him a lot. Um, C.S. Lewis, out of context, usually gets, you know, if you pull a, a quote out, you know, it's out of context. But he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And I agree with that. But I would add, and who am I? But I would add, <laughs> I'm sure he explains it in the whole book. But I would add, you can't think less of yourself or of yourself less unless you know that there's something greater. Otherwise, you're just changing the way you act. And it's something about you, not something about the greatness that you're trying to follow. Humility is not simply thinking of yourself less, but thinking of something greater. And your body responds to that. And so... Jesus is really trying to shock the disciples. Children were valued, but not that much. And we can relate to that in our own society. But Jesus is going to really reveal this whole idea of, of, uh, of greatness in chapter 20. But Matthew, whenever he designs his book, and I might have said this before, but it's kind of like crop circles. If you're in the weeds, if you're in, in the corn, like you're just following a maze. But if you get high up, you can see a larger picture. And so he takes different chapters, connects them together, and reveals a bigger picture. And so we're going to look at three different passages. We just did one. We'll do two more. We'll go quick, I promise. Turn to Matthew 19 real quick. Turn to Matthew 19, verse 13. It's just maybe a page to your right. And I'm going to read it for us. We're in Matthew 19, 13 through 15. So this passage is also connected to the one we just read. Okay? Okay? Because he kind of threads them all together to give us a big picture of greatness. 
This is the disciples' first opportunity to take what Jesus said of turn and become. And let's see how they do. Verse 13. Then children were brought to him, that he may lay his, his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So what happens? The disciples have a, a peak opportunity to not be consumed with themselves, but think that they are too much in of a hurry. They think they're too much to have children come beside Jesus. Whatever the case, they're too much into themselves. And they rebuke parents for bringing babies to, for, you know, the political, you know, like, kiss my baby. You know, they say, get out of here. Like, we got to keep going to Jerusalem, wherever we're going. That was their opportunity. They completely, completely miss it. And here Jesus, again, affirms children. Jesus affirms children. He's not just saying, this is who you should be like, but he also affirms children. He points to the significance and uniqueness of children in the kingdom life. And uh, one of the unique responsibilities I get here is I serve as the shepherd for family ministries. Um, So I want to speak briefly to this, but I don't want to speak directly to those who want to conceive but have not been able to conceive children. So this message isn't for you. Or those who have lost children and you're grieved over them. This isn't for you, but for the rest of us, this is for us. Jesus is not telling us simply imagery. He's telling us about an individual about individuals that are in kingdom life. And this is kind of an aside to our whole bigger point. But in our society, and even in our churches, whether parents and singles alike, parents of older kids or babies, singles or not, whatever, you're dating or not, the tendency is to consider children as distractions that are in the way of careers or in the way of our time. We consider children to be disappointments because of how they, they act in the company of others. Or we see them as something we just dislike. We're just, we're just not into kids, miss. You know, we're just, you know, kids, just, just not into kids. Or we just see them as something entirely other than what Jesus says here, which is disciples. They're not distractions. They're not disappointments. They're not just something you dislike. But they are, dis, they are disciples. And that's what Jesus is hammering home here, I think, in verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 13 through 15, is that Jesus is saying the uniqueness of how we're supposed to follow Jesus, but also the uniqueness of who children are in the kingdom of God. And this is just a word for parents. If your children are in children's ministry, don't miss the opportunity to be back there with them. If your children are back there, let them see you serve. Let them see you give. Let them see you give to their friends. And don't abdicate your responsibility to a volunteer. One time a week is not enough for discipleship. And that goes for all of us. If you think that you come here to be discipled, the whole world is discipling you before you get back. Whether or not you choose to disciple someone does not matter if you're discipling or not. You are teaching non-Christians what a disciple of Jesus looks like, whether you want to or not. How you conduct yourselves every day is teaching people who Jesus is. Whether you're actively saying, come follow me, or you're just acting the way you do in your workplace. You are discipling, or you're being discipled. And that goes for our children, too. Whether or not you choose to disciple them does not mean they will be discipled or not. They will be discipled. It's our opportunity to pour into them. It's our opportunity to give them.
And, and I would say that I'm saying from the stage, men, I need you in the back. I have a majority of boys and minority of men in children's ministry. And my boys, my two boys, and all the other boys in the back, because we have a majority boys in our, in our kids' ministry, I need men. It is once a month. If you don't have a Sunday responsibility, you should be back there. If you don't have a Sunday responsibility, we need you back there. We need you in Road Buddies. We need you in SK1, SK2, Street Cred. We need you. Not that I don't need women, because a majority of time, women are the strength and movement and muscle of every ministry in the church. Unfortunately, men lag. Rant over. Uh, <laughs> Matthew 20. Turn to Matthew 20 for me. So that's, that's Jesus touching children again, giving us an image of the kingdom. This final passage is going to focus on greatness, and he's going to bring it all together for us. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 28. We're going to fly through this one. So this is a follow-up passage, I think, of chapter 18. We're looking at chapter 20, verse 20 through 28, so just maybe one page over. It's very similar to Matthew 18, so look at verse 20. I'm going to read it real quick. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with their sons, coming up to Jesus, and kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, talking to the disciples, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those who have been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to, give, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this is a really painful passage to watch happen. Um, if you're over 20, and you call your mom to help you through this. It was cool when you were five. You don't want to get your mom to arm wrestle Jesus, but that's what they do. She says, and I like the way this goes. So it says, if you look in verse uh, 21, uh, or right before 21, she, it says she asked him for something, and then he said, what do you want? And then she says, say that my sons can sit at your left and right. And then he looks at the disciples. So he knows that they went and got mom. They went and got mom to ask if they could be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what they did there. That's pretty painful. Jesus perceives it. He says, you don't know what you want. You don't know what you're asking for. And he says, will you drink my cup? And what he's talking about, he's referring back to the Old Testament, saying that the cup of wrath of God is going to be poured out on his enemies. Jesus is saying, I'm going to drink that cup. You want some? And then he says, you will drink it. That's the way of discipleship. Jesus lays it out. The way of Jesus is one of suffering. Suffering for others. And Jesus says, I've submitted to my Father in my Father's business. His way of greatness is submission. It's dependence. It's willingly suffering. And that's the kind of disciples I'm calling you towards. And at the end of the, the passage, Jesus speaks to all of them. 
he speaks to all of them. He says, don't be like the nations, which is really, don't be like the governments around you. What do governments do? They grab hold of power, and most typically, they lord it over the people. They use people to get their way. The tip-top rulers, they rule over you with authority, and they dominate over you. The idea is that kings who send servants out to battle to fight so that they can be glorified. And those servants die on the field so that the king can be glorified. But Jesus says, no, I go out into the field and I fight. And I die for my servants. And that's the way of discipleship that he's laying out for us. He says, don't be like them who use their authority to gloat, to pursue their own greatness, to put it over others. Instead, Jesus says, be like a servant, which in fact, better yet, be like me. Jesus answers their Matthew 18 question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus says, me. They should have known that when they answered or when they walked up to him. He says, I'm the greatness of God. But they were consumed with petty arguments of their own greatness. He says, I'm the summary of greatness. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and he demonstrates what obedient allegiance looks like and what its roots are in, and it's in his form of greatness. Jesus is where all greatness is located. Jesus is the one that shows that being overwhelmed with His greatness is what decenters ours. If you want to be able to follow Jesus, you have to let His be bigger than your own, or else you have no chance at following His way, because you must be decentered in that process, or else He will be in competition with you. Jesus' greatness was what John was consumed with. But the disciples were consumed with their own achievements, their own reputation, their own pursuits. And so they had to turn and become like children who could see true greatness, become dependent on it. And this is why I want to explore just for a moment. How is Jesus the greatest in the kingdom of God? What is his summary of humility? Well, if you look at the two different passages we just saw, as a child, like a child, this is what he did. He was consumed with his daddy's business. He was consumed with the will of his father. If you notice, and I said this at the beginning, between 18 and 20, Jesus takes his first steps away from his ministry in Galilee. He takes his first steps to crucifixion. He is physically embodying greatness as he walks by way of suffering and leaving what was comfortable to follow the will of God. He took his first steps and greatness, dependence, and selflessness. Like a child who's taken from the outside of the circle and moved by their father into where he called him, Jesus did just that. He submitted to the discomfort of suffering. He submitted to be scorned and rejected, yet faithfully pressed in. And as a servant, or like a servant, he embraced suffering to give his life as a ransom, and serve and save many. The idea of ransom is not the idea that you picture maybe blackmail, but rather the idea of paying the price for liberation. Jesus is paying the price for liberation. If you looked at Romans 5, 5 through 8, it should be on the screen. Romans 5, 5 through 8 say this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Messiah died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, some of us want to get great and then come to Jesus. And that's not the way of Jesus. 
Some of us are in the way of Jesus and trying to make ourselves great, something other than what he found us in. But my friends, I'm freeing you up today to say you are fragile. You are flaky and you are easily broken. And that's the way of Jesus, is to be found by the Messiah in your weakness and, be, and he be executed for you. There's no other way of Jesus. If you think you're too strong, if you think you're too wise, if you are altering the commands of Jesus so that it can fit your lifestyle, you are assuming your strength. When we leave out our time in the Bible, our time in prayer, our time devoting ourselves to Jesus, we are assuming our greatness outside of his way because we think we know better and we can depend on ourselves. Jesus is saying, while you were weak, that's when he died for us. And it kind of gives a little funny part, you know, you might die for a righteous man and you might die for a good man, but for the sinners, that's who Jesus came for. For the lowest of the low, for the weak and those who are defeated. Jesus came for them. Christ died for sinners. Jesus not only redefines greatness, but dissenters ours from focusing on His. When we consider greatness, we can be consumed with His agenda instead of our own. We can be recalibrated back to what is truly greatness. But we have to turn from our own consumption into consuming His, into being overwhelmed by His. Otherwise, we try to make following Jesus like an Instagram filter. Same picture, different shade, flavor of Jesus, right? So you can continue to take the same pictures, but if your whole life isn't altered, then nothing is different about you. You're just wearing the shirt and just going about the business. But my friends, some of us in here need to turn. If your obedience doesn't align up with your allegiance, then you may not be in the kingdom of God. There is a day coming when the great king will judge. And our allegiance will be shown as to what it is. We must become like children. Accept your fragility. Accept your brokenness. Accept your weakness. Because that's the only way into the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, we place it on someone or something else. And I said this at the beginning. When we mistake who or what is great, we will misplace our allegiance. We will misrepresent the king, and we have misunderstood what the kingdom of heaven is about. When you pledge allegiance to something, you are pledging that that thing is greatest, supreme. It has all dominant authority. That's kind of the idea, and I'm not getting into the Pledge of Allegiance. That's the idea of the, the Pledge of Allegiance in America, that America will take supreme authority. If you're called upon, you will be drowned. If you're called upon, you will act in the interest of America. That's why treason is very punishable in America, right? When you pledge allegiance to something, you're assuming its greatness. The same in the kingdom of God. Pledging allegiance to Jesus comes as supreme authority over everything. That's pledging allegiance to Jesus. That is supreme loyalty. The agenda of that which is supreme or most important is the one you're most devoted to. You are loyal to what you believe is greatest. Actions are obedience. Obedience is allegiance. Allegiance is loyalty, what you think is greatest. But it's difficult for us to really know what's at the heart of our hearts. And that's why, like that favorite shirt that you were just trying to pull the thread out of, it can rip the whole thing apart whenever you dig into the actions of your life and you pull the thread and look at your actions and say, it will show what you think is greatest. Your actions go straight to the heart of what you think is greatest. A life that is lived thinking that yourself is greatest will 
misplace your allegiance? And these are the questions I want to ask as we begin kind of landing the plane. We said at the beginning about hurry and anxiety, not clinical anxiety, but hurry and anxiety, stress in our lives. Typically, a life of hurry, and I'm guilty of this, a life of hurry reveals dependence on self-greatness or obsession with another's greatness, but not Jesus's. Do you find it difficult to be still? Do you feel like you have to keep going and moving and acting? Are you dictated by your phone? Or does your life dictate what your phone tells you? Are you always on call? Are you afraid to take time off? Do you take too much time off? Do you have trouble saying no? Are you too busy for the people of God? Too busy for life group? Too busy for servitude? You might be associated with a different allegiance. All these things point not to childlike dependence, but self-centered dependence. A belief that you are the only one that can get it done. A belief that your greatness hinges on yourself and your lifestyle. But if we say Jesus is greatest, then I can be still. I don't have to hurry always to get the promotion. I don't have to always labor. I don't always have to go. I can turn off my phone or hide it at least. I can take time off because Jesus is greater than me. I can say no to work. I can say no to the busyness of life and say yes to his church. I don't have to fear missing out on something. I don't have to be at everything. And yet at the same time, I can say yes to some of the things I need to say yes to because Jesus said yes to me. I can say yes to servitude. I can say yes to life. I can say yes to accountability. I can say yes to the life of the church. And I can say no to hurry. Achievement or status. Achievement or status. Really a society that we live in, right? A drivenness to find out your own significance and how your actions really reveal a self-centered dependence as well. Is it okay that your projects aren't perfect? Are you trying to just beat out people at work? Are you operating solely to increase your yield, your salary, your status? Is that where your effort is put? Are you consumed with being the best disciple of Jesus and so weighed down with guilt and shame? Are your projects or free time more important than serving? If Jesus is better, I don't have to always show off. I don't have to always win at work or win that conversation. I can listen. I can sin and yet seek his face. I can consider a different perspective because I don't always have to be right. I can seek the good of my coworkers and not just my own. And I can take financial risks in the kingdom of God because my money isn't mine. I can commit to a local body, a life group, a ministry, because if Jesus is grace, they can be imperfect. Or I can be imperfect and come to them. I don't always have to serve the way I want to serve if Jesus is greatest. I can be wronged and yet forgive. I can be wrong and yet forgiven. Jesus provides that freedom. He pays the ransom, not only just so you can be forgiven of your sins, but a lifestyle that causes you to flourish. But we want to adjust his, his commandments and adjust it to the way of life we want it. We want it to say things that we want it to say instead of letting the text speak for itself. 
but when Jesus is greatest, then I'll trust his commands on my life and not just what the culture says is okay or what I think is okay. When Jesus is greatest, then I can be patient in suffering. When Jesus is greatest, I'll make time to spend with him. When Jesus is great, uh, greatest, I, can, I, I don't have to get it all figured out. I can doubt and yet run to him. When Jesus is greatest, then I can forego what I want to achieve to pursue whatever kingdom pursuit he's called me to. When Jesus, when Jesus is okay, my finances can be low because it's not about how much money I have in the bank. When Jesus is greatest, he changes everything and frees us. He frees us not just from the captivity of sin, which is incredible, but frees us to a lifestyle where we can be weak again, where we can be fragile again where we can be flimsy again, because Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the strongest. When he is the one that we are recalibrated around, we can truly be safe again. Your body can be tired, your son can be sick, your finances can be low, but brothers and sisters, this is good news. This is gospel, that Jesus forgives and provides a way to flourish in his kingdom reign. But he's either king or he's not. He's either king or he's not. And there'll come a day when he'll be king and you don't get to choose anymore. Some of us in a room just need to slow down. Some of us need to just remember who Jesus is, how great Jesus is, and really, really be okay with being fragile again. Really, really be okay that we cannot finish the race by ourselves. We need to be okay that Jesus gets the victory and we don't. We get to participate in his. And our agendas, our lifestyles, our schedules adjust to, to be around that. And some of you today don't follow Jesus. And my bet is you're either exhausted or you didn't hear the sermon. You're trying to block out negative vibes. But that will only last for a short time. And if you're exhausted... There's a place to be fragile. And this world will crush you and eat you up. But safety is found in Jesus. And the weakness that he found you in. And the weakness he can find you in. And deliver you from your sin. That you might find hope. That you might find flourishing. That's what Jesus offers to us today. He can forgive the most heinous and the most petty of crimes. He forgive us of the most heinous and disgusting thoughts. And I need you to know that if you're a Christian here and you feel the weight of how gross you are, then you are just as welcome as you were the day you found him. But some of us are so ashamed. But Jesus offers life, forgiveness, and fragility before the king and say, I, my life is about to break. And some of you need to be picked up from the outside and allow your father to put you in his will. And that's what he offers today, both to Christians and non. The way of Jesus will give you life. And the way of this world will eat you up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We pray that like children, we would run to you. That even if we don't understand why you walk us onto the stage and we're scared of the lights and the people and the greatness of this world in front of us, may we trust that you shield us. That you are the one that stands between us and the world, Satan and sin. 
You stand between us and death. And you carry and you walk us from these shores to the next. Lord, as you are making all things new, may our hearts not just realize our fragility, but the hope that is found in a flourishing life of following your commandments. Help us believe. Help us obey. Help us to trust. May our actions reflect who we truly put our allegiance in. May we turn and become like children, God. And may we hope in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to Mercy Street Church Podcast. Until we meet again, shalom.